First of all, I want to thank our pastor, Dr. Mac Dennis, for his kind invitation to stand here today. Thank you, Robert. And next Sunday to fill the pulpit. I, uh, as one who did it for years, I hold sacred this little bit of real estate and uh, I honor our minister and as do you. And we're so grateful that he's getting this time away to renew his life and the relationship so precious to him with his family. And I promise you, I guarantee you, he will come back to us renewed and refreshed. Uh, and we're good, we are a good and faithful church to bless this time away. I thank Mac. Also, it's wonderful today to have our whole family here. Uh, we don't get together much for anything, much less a sermon, I can tell you that. But, but to have everybody here, our three children, our two wonderful daughters-in-law and our son-in-law and our five crown jewels, uh, Griffin, Avi, Roland, Raya, and Cannon. Uh, they are the gifts to our family. And then there are two couples here who are our beloved neighbors, Harry and Pat Coolen and Jack and Sally Clipple. When they walked in the door today, I was just so blown away. These folks have come from near and far to be our, and we has, have we, to be neighbors in Asheville. And uh, you folks honor me today. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, you see in the bulletin there that the sermon is titled, When the Wine Runs Out, you heard the text, and I know what some of you are already thinking. You know, I, I, I've got that. Uh, that was Sunday school. Um, I, know, I know this story. Uh, it's been the brunt of jokes. It's, um, of course, Baptists struggle with this, and I can tell you that one of the more noted winemakers in this country, Larry Turley, was literally drummed out of the First Baptist Church of Augusta, Georgia, back in the 60s because he dared suggest in a Sunday school class that this was not Welch's grape juice, that this was actually a fine vintage of wine. And now Turley wine is the celebrated Zinfandel of California. So I know you're saying I've got this, um, you know, there's the, the time factor. Maybe we don't. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Go back with me 28 years to Jerusalem in 1993. I was there leading some pilgrims to the land of the Bible, and it was a Tuesday evening. We were tired. We had walked all over various parts of the old city, and uh, we had gone to dinner. And when dinner was over, I don't know, it was probably about 7 o'clock, I walked out to the lobby of the Hyatt there in Jerusalem and was just standing there near the concierge when the doors opened and this party came into the lobby of the hotel in evening attire. The women had gowns on, the men were in black tie. Uh, this was Tuesday evening at seven o'clock. I, I turned to the concierge and I said, you know, what's going on here? All these people coming in the hotel, seven o'clock Tuesday night, what, what, what's this? Oh, he said, this, it's a wedding. I said, a wedding? He said, oh yeah, it's customary in Israel to get married on Tuesday. That's when, that's when folks get married around here. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. 
But the third day in the Bible is a lot more than just Tuesday, isn't it? We who've been around the faith a long time know that that the third day is that day of Easter. In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus predicts his death and suffering, resurrection. And he says, I, I will die, I'll be crucified, be handed over to wicked folks. And I'll be buried, but on the third day, I will rise. And so in the economy, the algorithmic numbers of the Bible, the, the third day is resurrection day, and it happens to also be the first day. It's Sunday, isn't it? When you read the Gospel of John, you, you must read it at a couple of levels. You read it at the story level. Tuesday, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. But then you also have to read it at another level. It's that other level, that second dimension of the story that has my imagination this morning. Now, most cultures in the world, uh, foremost cultures in the world, a wedding is a big deal. Any mom or dad that's put on a wedding for a daughter or a son knows that as soon as the engagement is announced, there begins a little sucking sound heard from your right rear pocket, you know, and it's all this stuff that you have to create and prepare for. Kathy and I thought we knew what weddings were all about until our son Justin married Sonal Amin, and we discovered Bible weddings. We discovered that an Indian wedding is of biblical proportion. And there are fam there's family and feasting and dancing and days of celebration. That was the scene in this story. We know that Jesus is there, his mother is there, and we're told that some of his disciples are there. We also know from the fourth gospel that Nathaniel, one of his early followers, is from that village. So the wedding's going on. We don't know how many days it's been. We do know that the setting seems to be at the bridegroom's house, which tells us that the wedding, the ceremony had probably already taken place. And all of a sudden, the catastrophe of all catastrophes in a middle, for a Middle Eastern wedding, the wine runs out. Our Lord's mother seeks her, out her son and says to him, son, they have no wine. And Jesus looks at his mother and says in rather stark, we would even say rude language, woman, what is this between us? In other words, this is no business of ours. And then there's a pause in the story. It's not in the Bible. You have to see it, don't you? There's a pause there because the mother has spoken, the son has responded. And she looks at him after he says it's none of our business with that look only a mother can give. <laughs> I think you know what I mean. Do what he says. He turns to the servants, do what he says. And then we're told that there are six stone jars there. Those jars were used for, John tells us, they were used for rites of purification. In that culture, and particularly among the religion and faith of the Jewish people, there were, it was important to have these ablutions, these, these, these cleansings of one's hands to prepare for the ritual moments of 
a feast or even of worship. We know from archaeology in Jerusalem that there are mikvah, there are baths that have been found in, in, in uh, first century residences in Jerusalem where Jewish people would ritually cleanse themselves. So we're told that Jesus says, fill the jars to the brim, and the servants fill them to the brim. In fact, the, the language suggests they could hold no more. There are six stone jars, count them, one, two, three, four, five, six. They're filled to the brim, they can hold no more. Then Jesus says, now draw, now draw, and serve to the steward of the feast. Now, you Greekers in the congregation uh, might be aware of this little verb. It's the verb antleo. It's only four times in the New Testament and all four times in the Gospel of John. It's found twice here to draw water, and it's also found in that enigmatic conversation between the woman of Samaria and our Lord at the well. Jesus says, now draw. The British New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett in his magisterial commentary in the 1950s went out on a limb and he's still out there, Terry. He's still out on that limb. When Barrett suggested that the imperative now draw in the language of the first century only applies to drawing water from a well, he said you knew this story. They now draw antleo from the well, and they serve up to the steward of the feast, and he takes his Rydell stem, and he looks at it. He turns it a bit in the light, and he takes a taste. He tastes it a second time. And he says to himself, ah, this is 89 Holbrion. This is 2000 Margot. He takes his glass and walks over to the bridegroom and says, I, I, I don't know what's going on here. I just got this water that they went to well. All of a sudden, I'm drinking wine. Somebody knows what's going on, but it's not me. Everyone serves the best wine first. And then when folks get a bit tipsy, the cheap stuff comes out. But you, sir, have saved the best till last. And then the gospel writer says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's the story. I wonder this morning, would you go with me for just a few minutes here? Would, would you venture an idea for just a few minutes? I wonder if this story is really a metaphor for life. Because if it is, if this story is a metaphor for life, in life the wine always runs out. Wine can run out of a career. It can run out of a friendship. Wine can run out of a neighborhood. 
a hobby, and sad to say, a wine, the wine can run out of a marriage. Wine can even run out of a church relationship. At the wedding of your life, you, you wake up, you come to awareness, you realize the wine, the lubrication of life, the joy, the joy de vivre, the, that which makes life, life, it's, it's run out. And when it does, as it always does, we would be wise to look around and perhaps in looking around discover that we have a guest at the wedding of our life who turns water into wine. Is there a word from God for us today? Oh, there's so much here, but, you know, I don't have a lot of time. But one preacher told me, he said, I've decided not to finish until I'm through. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, it, 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 to me, it's obvious. The, the first, most obvious point of the story, first of all, is that six will never be seven. These six water jars are filled to the brim. And we can do the best we can in life, and we do, and we will take the water jars of our life and we'll fill them up to the brim. And when they get a little low, we'll throw some more water in there. We'll fill it up with education and experiences, successes, failures, and of course, in this culture, a lot of stuff. And in time, it all runs out. One of the most uh, lucrative businesses in this country are storage warehouses. We are the hollow men, said Eliot. We are the stuffed men. I think of those haunting lines from Peggy Lee, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Is that all there is, my friends? Then let's keep dancing, let's pass out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. No, six will never be seven, can't be, will not be, will never be. Six will never be seven. One commentator has said that the six filled jars suggest that Judaism at that time was holding all it could hold. But you could put any religion in there, holding all it can hold, it can't take anymore. John plays with this idea in his gospel you recall in this encounter of our Lord with the woman at the well, they're having this banter between themselves. And he says, call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, yes, you've had five and the one you're living with is not your husband. Six would never be seven. And then they talk about the water. <laughs> and the well. Go to the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus looks out and there's a crowd. It's late in the day. He, he turns to his follower, his disciple Philip, and says, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip says, six months wages will not be enough to feed all these folks. But there's a little lad here who has five loaves and two fish.
Now, the story tells us that we are the people who dare to live with seven and believe that seven always comes into play when the water jars of our life can hold no more. And yet, what do we do? We keep filling clay pots, surprised, dare I say astonished, that what we're doing is, in fact, nothing more than a religious cleanup job. We're taking pots that are used to clean up hands and think, well, we'll just keep using this. Six. We'll never be seven. But there's something else, and I, I hasten to say it. And, and, no, and this is, I think, one of the beautiful human parts of this story. Notice in the story that Jesus is present, but he's not pushy. He's present, but not pushy. Mary's pushy. Mary the fixer, Mary the solver, Mary who wants everybody happy. She's a doer, she's a fixer, she's a problem solver. Jesus is present, but he's not pushy. Brothers and sisters, help me understand. I, 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 you know as well as I do. Where did the church ever get the idea that we have to push our faith on everybody else? No, the faith is caught by the presence of God's people in the world who realize that life is a wedding. It's a wedding. And there's a guest at the wedding of our life who takes ordinary things and turns them into vintage wine. Our Lord's movement is not about patching old wineskins or filling cracked clay jars to the brim, much less telling us why the wine runs out. Do you ever notice that in the story? Jesus never litigates the reason the wine ran out. But we, we would do that. What, 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 the wine's run out? Wait a second, whose fault is that? Wait, where's the wedding planner? Bring that person in here. Uh, you didn't order enough wine? Now you're gonna tell me next we don't have enough food? No, Jesus never litigates the problem. He simply steps in and says, now draw. One of my predecessors as Augusta was Dr. Jack Robinson. Susan knew him well. Dr. Robinson was one of the celebrated preachers in Baptist life in the 60s, 50s, and 60s. David knew his ministry well. Jack tells the story of being invited to preach at a prison not far from Augustine. He stood up before a chapel full of prisoners and he delivered a sermon. And then looking back on that moment, he said in a sermon he preached that I heard. He said, those men in that room did not need me to tell them how bad they are. They needed me to tell them how wonderful a savior is. Jesus is present, but he's not pushy. And then the last little takeaway, and there's more than this. I hope this sermon will haunt you all week. I, I hope you'll go and let it just work on you a long time. But this third idea is that God always saves the best wine for the last. <laughs> the best is always last. When we were serving the First Baptist Church of Mooresville, Kathy was teaching Sunday school. 
and she needed a helper in the class, and so she sought out an older man in the congregation, Harvey Millsaps. Harvey came to church with his North Carolina State Stetson on. He was a wolf pack guy. And Kathy went to Harvey and said, Harvey, I need some help in this class of these children. Would you come help me? He said, Kathy, you don't want me. I'm an old guy. Those kids don't want me around. And she said, oh, oh, they do. I, I want you around. I want them to know you. And I want you to share your life with them. And he did. God wasn't finished with Harvey Millsaps. <laughs> and it took some children to call him back to the well. Our congregation stands on the cusp of a new era, new opportunities, new ministry. God is calling us, at least I want you to believe with me, God is calling us to be a third day community, to live in the third day where jars are all filled with all the things that people can put in them. But we as the people of faith say it's the third day and start drawing that water from the well with the wine from which the wine never ends. You know, Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. She is a new creation. John the seer wrote, behold, I make all things new. Jesus in this fourth gospel says, the ones who believe in me have passed from six into seven, from death into life. This one who is word made flesh, light of the world, bread of life, living water, best wine, good shepherd, resurrection and life, is here at the wedding of our lives and at the wedding of our congregational's common life. Now more than ever, at any time, you get to the place where you think the wine has run out. Listen. Now draw. Now draw. Now draw. Amen.